Well, um, tonight, so um, one way we could understand the service project is um, that there are certain values that the Buddha emphasizes in Dharma practice. And one of the fundamental values that he emphasizes is dana or generosity. And he teaches it over and over and over again for people who come to seek freedom. And he emphasizes at the beginning of the graduated path as the foundation of the path and then as one of the expressions of the perfection of the path is the teaching of dana or generosity and I, or, or giving it's also called the teaching of giving and as you can hear people gave of themselves it's giving comes in many many forms as some people give of their means and some people give of their time or their um, different qualities that we all have different gifts to give some of us give of our creativity whether it's ph- photography or um, the arts, dance or music and some people give of their um, intelligence maybe they teach or they they do science or, or mathematics and some people give in numerous ways actually we all give in numerous ways and so the Buddha said it's very important to recognize giving and receiving and the power of that and the goodness of, of dana. And tonight I'd like to talk a little bit about one of the forms of giving um, and the form of giving. This is the form of giving that is in the form of forgiveness and the practice of forgiveness and the place of forgiveness in Buddhist practice. And in the in the monastic community, both forgiveness and reconciliation are very, very important, very important parts of practice. And the word for forgiveness in Pali, which is kama, K-A-M-A, K-H-A-M-A, it's similar to karma, but not actually the same root. It, it also means the earth. And so when the mind is like the earth, when there's a non-reactivity or it's unperturbed like the earth, it's solid like the earth, then there's the basis, one of the bases for forgiveness. And forgiveness is understood to be that there's no retaliation, there's no revenge, there's no um, reaction that goes out that we forgive. And that part of the what we're giving is we're giving ourselves the freedom to let go. We're giving to the, ourselves the freedom to let go of our anger, to let go of our um, reactivity, to let go of the cycle of suffering that happens between people when people hurt one another in whatever way, shape, or form. And then reconciliation is actually considered of another order in Buddhism. Reconciliation means that there's a a return or restoration of um, an amicability between parties, which may or may not happen with forgiveness. Forgiveness doesn't mean that 
everybody is reconciled. Forgiveness primarily means that we let go, that we are free of what we're holding, of our anger or our fear or our whatever it might be. <clears throat> so I'll, I'll start with forgiveness. We'll see how far we get. Maybe I'll get all the way to reconciliation or not. But I'd like to talk about forgiveness. And, I mean, one way you could think about it is Imagine a world where there is no forgiveness. Just even whether you think in your own individual world or in the world at large. And actually it's very easy to see what the world's like when there's no forgiveness by the events of the world. But also to think personally. What if there was a world where there was no forgiveness? The world would be a barren world, ultimately, if there was no forgiveness. There would be almost no relationship, ultimately. Because we know as human beings, we know our imperfectibility in that sense. That we've all done things that have hurt other people. Or that other people have done things that have hurt us. it, It seems inevitable as part of life in the human realm, in this realm of being human beings, half animal, half gods in some way, and, and, um, and not uh, free, not awakened, not liberated, but still rooted or, or um, in the thrall of ignorance, in the thrall of confusion, in the thrall of our misunderstanding and misperception of reality our belief in the individual, especially in this culture, is supreme in some sense. So forgiveness partly is learning, beginning on the individual level, to let go of past suffering, betrayal, pain, hurt, hatred, fear. it begins to also point us, the possibility of letting go also points us at the um, bounty of our heart, the bounty of the human heart, the bounty of human nature, the bigness of the human heart. When one of the ways the Buddha described awakening as he described it as the sure heart's release, the sure heart's release. And, and in the teachings on the Brahma Vihara, on the awakened heart, they talk about a heart that's um, boundless, limitless. Sometimes the, the Buddha described it as a heart as big as the world, that a heart can, that can actually hold the suffering of the world, that can hold it with kindness, with care, and with the wisdom that allows forgiveness. The dialogue between two former prisoners of war. One said, have you forgiven your captors yet? The other replied, no, never. I'll never forgive them. And the first one said, well then, they still have you in prison then, don't they? That we're bound, that so much of our suffering is in our own hearts and minds. And that whatever's happened to us, especially whatever's happened to us in the past, is literally the past. 
We, you ever notice how you can be mad at somebody? Really angry about what they did and even righteous about it. And you may even be totally right. And they're off on vacation having a good time. <laughs> and, and that really gets, gets us, right? You know, that really, that's like salt in the, in the wound. So I think it's important to see that forgiveness, first of all, is for ourselves. Is, for, is, is that we may be free of suffering and we may be free of the heartache or the holding or the pain. <clears throat> and it, there's, it's interesting to actually look at the belief or start to surface the belief, sometimes conscious but often unconscious about holding on to our anger, holding on to our hatred, holding on to the pain, holding on to whatever happened in the past. Because there's some belief there that doing that will make us feel better. That will actually relieve us in some way or satisfy us in some way. And I want to be careful here because there's two, two pieces. One piece needs to be acknowledged, which is partly the reason we hold on to the pain is because we haven't felt it fully. Or the reason we hold on to the anger is we haven't felt it all the way. That we kind of feel it some, but we really don't let ourselves burn in the middle of it. We really don't let ourselves sit in the fire of our emotions fully. And until then, until we give our emotions their full respect, they often won't let go. They won't let go. And somewhat we're afraid of our emotions because they're powerful and they're strong and they're overwhelming and we don't often have the skills or the, um, the, the, um, the capacity that develops with skills to sit in the middle of intense anger, hurt, fear, hatred. We actually don't know how to do that. One of the benefits of mindfulness practice is that it can provide the skill and the capacity to stay present in the middle, right, right in the middle of those experiences so they can begin to let go on their own because that's their nature ultimately. The nature of any conditioned experience is to release. That it's not permanent, it's not fixed, it's not concrete. Even though we've had it for 20 years, it's still not concrete. And even in the world, with the worst tragedies of our world, if we look a little bit in history, it's interesting to see where people have forgiven other people. I mean, if, if we just go back to World War II, in some sense, the Americans had to forgive the Japanese for Pearl Harbor. And then the Japanese had to forgive the Americans for Hiroshima. And, if, and we could keep going back in history and just see all the tragedies that have happened and how, in some sense, we've had to let go if we're going to live together. We've had to let go. Or even currently, let's say, let's take South Africa, which was only liberated very recently from apartheid. And the movement there, the efforts there to reconcile, 
to let go of the past so that there can be a better future. That there's no healing ultimately without forgiveness, without reconciliation on some level. And so part of what forgiveness means is forgiveness means giving up all hope of a better past. It, it means we have to accept things as they were, as they come to us. And then to begin to see how can we work with the reality of what's here. And the forgiveness, the letting go of our hatred, our reactivity, our fears, um, it allows the, uh, our energies to free up. Those are all energy. There's a lot of energy in those emotions, in those feelings, in those reactions. And we want to liberate that energy because that's good energy ultimately. So it's very important not to judge our hatred, not to judge our anger, not to judge our fear, not to judge our reactivity. But to begin to see there's something there that we want. And it's that energy, it's that aliveness that then, then can fuel our uh, intelligence, our creativity, um, that the boundless nature of our heart can actually begin to function because it's needed more and more and more and more in our world. It's needed more than ever in our world to let the wisdom of the mind begin to function, to begin to let the goodness of our presence here, of our nature, begin to express itself in this world because our world needs it very much. And so forgiveness, in that sense, it's like the Dalai Lama, who I mention this often, talking about the Chinese government as my friends, the enemy. It means being willing to see realistically what's happening and then to start to deal with it, start to respond to it from a place not of having, not that we can change the past, but how are we going to change the future? How are we going to change life on this planet now? In the Bhagavad Gita it said, if you want to see the heroic, look at those who can love in return for hatred. If you want to see the brave, look for those who can forgive. I think often forgiveness is thought of as naive or weak or unreal, unrealistic. And the fact is it does call for a certain kind of courage, a certain kind of clarity for us to be willing to look really both at what's happened and our reaction to what's happened. And not to, not to Pollyanna it over in any way, shape, or form. Not to deny our reactions. <clears throat> but we're not, but it's also important to, to remember that forgiveness is not forgive uh, and forget. It's actually the opposite. It's forgive and remember. The, the forgetting is one of the problems uh, of, of ignorance in Buddhism. Mindfulness, actually, one of the translations of mindfulness is to remember. 
that re it is remembering, it's being awake to the way things are, to what's happened, that brings freedom, not forgetting, not denying, not pretending. Pretending doesn't work. Denying doesn't work. So, the wisdom of forgiveness asks, asks us to see clearly and directly and to not forget. One of the, one of the benefits of having some sense of history and looking at history is if we really look at it, maybe, maybe we can learn from it. So I know in Sri Lanka where there's been ongoing civil strife, between the Buddhists and the Tamals, between the government and the rebels. Um, there's an organization, a Buddhist peace organization devoted to bringing peace. And what they've proposed is a 500-year peace plan. A 500, because a five-year, a one-year, a two-month, you know, that, that's, it's not going to work. But we need to think bigger. We need to think outside the box. And this is true for all of us. If our world is to survive, we need to, we need to look at history very clearly and then see how can we respond to the suffering of however long it's been instead of just react to the suffering, instead of just um, continue the suffering with more suffering. And the Dhammapada said, hatred never ceases through hatred, but by love alone will hatred cease. This is an eternal law. This is an eternal law. Hatred never ceases by hatred. So forgiveness does not forget and it does not condone. It doesn't say, oh yeah, that was okay. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness says, I'm not going to hold on to my reaction as the truth. I'm willing to see the truth of what's happened, but I'm not going to hold on to my reactivity, my, the, the reaction that comes out of the small sense of self. So forgiveness sees wisely, and it's willing to acknowledge what's unjust, what's harmful, what, what has been wrong. And then we may not know how to respond at first. That may be true. We may not. We may have to take the time to really contemplate the suffering that's been caused by ourselves or by others. We may also, it's very important to see the strength that is possible in forgiveness, that it's not a position of weakness. Forgiving may also say, I'll never let that happen again. That, that That's not right, period. But it doesn't mean we hold on with a contracted heart. One of the teachings Ram Das, when he you know, had his guru in India and he was leaving... And his teacher actually gave him two teachings as he left. He said, you know, what should I practice? What should I do? One teaching was about service. He told Ram Dass, serve people. Whatever you do, serve others. And then the other teaching was, never put anybody out of your heart. 
Never put anybody out of your heart. And the, this teaching is, is a teaching in Buddhism. I've heard it more expressed this way by Ajahn Sumedho, who said, you don't have to like everybody. You just have to love them. And that's the, that's the possibility of the awakened heart. That's the possibility of the boundless heart. Because we're not going to like everybody. We're not going to like what people do. And to try to pretend, to try to act towards some idealized version of what it means to be Buddhist is just suffering. It's inauthenticity. But if we start to, if we learn how to stay present and stay present with the totality of our experience, with all of our experience, we will discover a heart that's as big as the world. We will discover a heart that is boundless. We will discover that one of the aspects of our nature is actually love. It's not like, oh, you have to be loving towards everyone. That, that doesn't quite work either. It's not something one does. It's part of what one realizes. One, one I think, my, my guess is that we all already intuit this as part of our nature. Even if we're, we go in and out of touch with it or only touch it briefly, we all intuit that this is part of our nature. And it's why we're drawn to it. It's why when people speak of it, it resonates because it's already here. And then the work of practice is to uncover or unveil the heart, the great heart of a Buddha, of Kuan Yin. So part of um, in Buddhism, as we've talked about many times here, suffering is emphasized. The Four Noble Truths have suffering at their as their thread. Right? There's the truth of suffering. There's the truth of the cause of suffering. There's the truth of freedom from suffering. And there's the truth of a path or a way that leads to freedom. Suffering is also understood as the doorway to compassion in Buddhism. The gateway to compassion. Mm -hmm. That it's by turning towards suffering. It's by looking directly at suffering. Our own suffering and the suffering of others. That we really begin to see what equalizes us as people. What we share not only as people, but as sentient beings, which is that we suffer. And all beings suffer. All human beings suffer. And part of what, what part of the, um, and I'm going to add this in because it'll help give context, which is, it's also talked about there's two kinds of suffering. There's suffering that leads to more suffering, suffering that leads to less suffering. So that depending on our perspective, our training, our skillfulness, if we're not skilled, generally our suffering will lead to more suffering. But as we learn to turn towards suffering in a mindful way, if we learn to find our ground and our center so that we can be with suffering, that we can be present with suffering, so we can begin to allow suffering to self-liberate, then we're turning towards suffering that leads to less suffering. And 
one of the sufferings in our life and in our world is that we don't see or we fail to look clearly, directly at the suffering of others. And I've used this story before, I'll use it again. It's a very simple story. When I was training, when I was a therapist, and I was training many years ago, one of my supervisors in, said, working with couples, he said, you want to make sure that they see the blood. I'm like, okay, what does that mean, right? He said, well, when they, when they shoot at each other, when they start firing the bullets, the meanness, they generally turn away and do it like this. Boom, boom, boom. They don't actually see the hurt that they cause. And, and in not seeing the hurt, then the compassion will never arise. The humanity will never arise. It's because if we really look at others' suffering, if we really stay present, our humanity arises naturally. Because if we're not, if, if it doesn't, it means we're naturally not seeing the suffering. We're, we're overlaying it with our projections, our images, our ideas, our fears of others, our beliefs about them. We're actually not seeing the living being who's here. Who we're, it's not even that we're, to say we're connected to, to each other is too mechanical. We are of the same nature. We are of the same um, essence. There's no, it's, it's, even to say interconnected is too mechanical. That we are the same expression of life in its various forms, in its various uniquenesses. You know, it's sometimes I've heard it like a, the fingers of a hand. It's all one hand. Each finger is different. Each finger is unique. But it's not, it's not exactly separate. They come, we come from the same source. And ultimately, all of sentient life, life itself is expressing itself here in its myriad forms, whether it be human life or non-human life, animal life or even really vegetable life. The whole universe is expressing itself as life. So it's not, it's not like trying to piece together a puzzle and be connected this way. It, it's of one source, ultimately. It's one expression, ultimately. And so part of our, our work, and this is, this is it's talked about in the mindfulness teachings. The Buddha says he'll talk about being mindful of the body internally and externally. Mindful of the feelings internally and externally. Mindful of the mind internally and externally. Mindful of the dharmas internally and externally. We start with ourselves, but we don't end with ourselves. We start here, but ultimately our mindfulness includes all of reality. That's why I, I, I'll paraphrase Ryokan. He said, uh, oh, that my priest's robe were wide enough to embrace all the suffering people in this floating world. That's what our mindfulness is like, ultimately, to embrace all the suffering people in this floating world. Or our friends Kitty Sarah and Tanisara, who were a monk and nun and left the monastery and got married. And when I talked to them a few years after they'd been married, I talked to Kitty Sarah. I asked him, how was it to be married? And, you know, he'd done... All he'd done for 15 years was mindfulness practice as a 
monastic, and he said, oh, it's, you know, I, th- I think relationship is hard, right? I'm a lay person. Relationship is dukkha, right? He's like, he's like, oh, no, it's, it's, well, it's easy. It's like having two people under one robe in his southern accent. And that's really how he understood relationship. The mindfulness just gets bigger. It just gets more inclusive and ultimately includes the whole world. This is from Longfellow who said, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should see sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. So the principles here of being present, of starting to be awake, of starting to find how wisdom and compassion work together to allow the greatness of heart, to to recognize the heart grown great is how it's described in the text. This possibility of our heart, and it, you know, it happens with can happen you know, with Buddhist practice, but it doesn't need to be with any practice. You all know when your heart has been great, when your heart has been kind, when your heart has the capacity to see the suffering, even though you've been hurt, you, you see the ignorance out of which the suffering comes, or the misunderstanding, or the misguidedness, and then the forgiveness comes quite naturally. This is a story, a, a very Jack Cornfield story, but I couldn't resist. Um, it's about a golfer, an Argentinian golfer named Roberto uh, Di Vicenza, who won a tournament, received the check, and was smiling for the cameras, went back to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. Sometimes later, he walked alone to his car to the parking lot and was approached by a young woman. She congratulated him on this victory and told him that her child was seriously ill and near death. He was touched by her story and took out a pen and endorsed the winning check over to her, gave the payment to the woman. Make some good days for the baby, he said, as he pressed the check into her hand. And then the next week, he was sitting, having lunch at the country club when a PGA official came to his table and said, some of the guys in the parking lot last week told me you met a young woman after you had won and gave her a check, gave her your check. And he said, well, I have news for you. She's a phony. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. And he said, you mean there is no baby who is dying? And the guy said, that's right. And Vincenzo said, that's the best news I've heard all week. (laughs) you know sometimes cultures have ritual for um, forgiveness in uh, Hawaii if you go to the big island the native culture there there's a place on the big island called the city of refuge and the city of refuge is this little place right on the shore with this um, kind of these um, this, these walls of uh, lava rock walls. And in the, in the old days, 
if you committed some misdeed, and it could be anything, including up to murder, all the way to murder, but if you, and, and the people were after you, and you got to the city of refuge, then the priests and the shamans would perform rituals, and you were forgiven, no matter what, no matter what you did. And then you were allowed to return home unharmed. Or in South Africa, there's a tribe, and this is really, you can hear the wisdom in this story. There's a tribe where whenever a person acts irresponsibly or badly or unjustly, they're placed in the middle of a circle and all work stops. And the whole tribe gathers around, men, women, children, everybody's there in the village. And the accused individual is in the center. And just, just even think about how you're thinking about this already, how we might think about it, given we live in a, in a world of retribution and conviction and condemnation and imprisonment. And, and here what the tribe does is that each person in the tribe speaks to the individual, to the accused. And one at a time, they recall the good things the person has done that they can remember that they speak to them about whatever they can remember in their lifetime that they've done that they've been that's been good any incident any experience that can be recalled with any detail or accuracy is recounted and all of the positive attributes good deeds strengths kindnesses care of that person are recited carefully and at length this is how they respond to the, the break in the fabric of relationship. And the ceremony can last days, right? They're not on the clock in the same way we are, right? And at the end, the circle is broken and a joyous celebration takes place. And the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back to the tribe. It's, uh, it's quite a moving image. I mean, to, to acknowledge people, to respect people, to care for people as a way to respond to their ignorance or their confusion. To love people. The Dalai Lama, again, talking about capital punishment, he says, it is better to pardon, not to forget, but to forgive. The deeds such people did were hateful, negative, worthy of being condemned, but they belong to the past. Ultimately, all people deserve compassion and when necessary, pardon, or at least forgiveness. Even as a preventive measure, I'm not at all convinced the death penalty has any value whatsoever. If a young person became a criminal through a lack of love and affection, more hatred is not going to make the situation right. If there really existed a young criminal who we were absolutely certain could never change for the better, whether by spiritual means, meditation or whatever, if we were absolutely sure that by remaining alive he or she would only murder more people, then perhaps we should consider it. But I still cannot believe that capital punishment would help. There must be other means. So here's the story again. This is the story I got from Jack that he's so good at finding. 
actually the, um, what he said was that he met a man on a train and he, in Washington and he heard this story. And it's about a 14-year-old boy who was in a program. The fellow worked, uh, African-American man, who worked um, in the District of Columbia rehabilitating juvenile offenders. And there was a boy in his program who had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. And at his trial, the victim's mother sat impassively silent until the end when the youth was convicted of the killing. And after the verdict was announced, she stood up slowly and stared directly at him and stated, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And then the youth was taken away to serve his years in juvenile. And after the first half year, the mother of the slain child, the slain boy, went to visit the killer. And he'd been living on the streets before the killing and she was the only visitor he had. He hadn't had any other visitors. And they talked for a while and when she left, she gave him some money for cigarettes. And then she started step by step to visit him more regularly, bringing him food and gifts. And near the end of the three-year sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. And he was confused and uncertain, so she offered to set him up with a job at a friend's company. And she inquired about where he would live, since he had no family to return to. And she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her house. And he lived there for eight months. She fed him. He worked at the job. And then one evening, she called him into the living room to talk. And they sat down. And she said, do you remember in the courtroom when I said I was going to kill you? He said, I sure do. And she said, well, I did. I did not want the boy who could kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. And that's why I started to visit you and to bring you things. And that's why I got you the job and let you live here in the house. That's how I set about changing you. And that boy, he's gone. That boy is gone. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone and that killer is gone, if you'll stay here. And I've got a room and I'd like to adopt you if you let me. And she became the mother of her son's killer. This, this is the power of the heart and of the wisdom of the heart, the capacity of our heart and our wisdom, which knows no limit, which knows no limit, especially when we're not bound to the past, we're not bound to a small sense of self, when there's some contact with what, who, we are in essence. Hmm. One of the obstacles for people with forgiveness is that it doesn't work on our timeline. It's like, okay, I'm, I want to forgive but I'm totally pissed. Well, I'm going to forgive. It's not working. It doesn't work on our timeline. It's a practice. 
we're beginning to cultivate, we're beginning to invite the heart to open in a way maybe it doesn't know how to open yet. And in the Dhammapada it said, just as by the gradual fall of raindrops the water jar is filled, so in time the wise become full, become replete with the good. And it's a little bit how forgiveness works. It works one drop at a time. And so, in the monastery, one might practice this meditation hundreds or thousands of times as a way to begin to allow the heart to open. So what I'd like to do tonight is actually end with a little forgiveness practice. We'll do a little formal forgiveness. I'll guide you through it. So sit, you can sit up, you could sit comfortably, whatever works for you. Let your eyes close. Let your breath be easy, natural. Maybe take a few full breaths just to relax a little from the talk, from listening. Make contact with your body. And then directing the breath for a few moments as if you could breathe in and out from the heart center, from the center of your chest. Letting the breath be like a balm or a salve, a moisturizer for the heart, a tenderizer. And uh, there's two, really two parts to the forgiveness practice, to stay in touch with your heart, to feel your body, and then to acknowledge, without judgment, the ways we've hurt others. Other images may come to mind, thoughts may come to mind, ways we've been unskillful through our actions, through our words, through our thoughts. Acknowledging that there are many ways that I've hurt or harmed others, have betrayed or abandoned, caused suffering, knowingly or unknowingly at times. Out of our unskillfulness, our confusion, our pain, our fear, our anger. Breathing with it, acknowledging it, not condemning ourselves at all, but simply acknowledging the truth of our suffering and that we've acted out of our suffering. And you have, may have memories or images. It's fine to let them come. There may be sorrow, there may be regret. But beginning to sense that you can release the burden. So we acknowledge and then we ask. We, let, we ask to let go. We ask for forgiveness. And as the people or persons we've heard come to mind, just quietly in your heart, in your mind's eye, asking for forgiveness. I ask for your forgiveness. 
I ask for your forgiveness now. May I be forgiven for my confusion, my unskillfulness, for whatever pain I may have caused, knowingly or unknowingly, through body, speech, mind. And then again, reflecting, taking a few moments to reflect on ways that we may have been hurt or harmed by others through their actions, through their words or deeds, thoughts. People, relationships, family, co-workers, people we don't even know at times. Acknowledging that there are many ways that I've been hurt or harmed by others. Remember, it's very important here to forgive only as what, to whatever degree is possible. And if it's not possible, then the intention is to maybe someday be able to forgive, but not now. So you don't have to be inauthentic. So that acknowledging the ways we've been harmed or abused or abandoned, knowingly or unknowingly, picturing and remembering, feeling, breathing with the heart's pains, the sorrows of the heart, the hurts of the heart, the anger of the heart, Remembering the many ways that others have hurt or harmed me out of their fear, out of their pain, confusion, ignorance. And that I've carried this pain in my heart a long time. And to the extent that I am ready, and only to the extent that I am ready, I offer you forgiveness to those who have hurt or harmed me. I let go. I offer my forgiveness to whatever extent possible. I forgive you. And then this is generally a threefold reflection acknowledging how we've hurt others, acknowledging how others have hurt us. And then what's often most difficult for people is acknowledging how we've hurt ourselves. Just as I have caused suffering to others, there are many ways that I've hurt or harmed myself, betrayed myself, abandoned myself through thought or word or deed. Again, breathing into the heart center, acknowledging how we've hurt ourselves. Just 
staying connected to your precious body, this precious life. Letting yourself see or remember, feel the ways that you've hurt yourself, picturing them. Maybe through not honoring yourself physically or emotionally, mentally. Abusing oneself through drugs or alcohol. Not standing up for ourselves at times. Not saying what's true, what's real for us. Feeling the sorrow or any regret that you may have without condemning yourself. But sensing that the burden, the holding can be released. And very kindly, compassionately extending forgiveness for each act of betrayal or unconsciousness or lack of care, lack of kindness. In whatever way that I've hurt or harmed myself, through my actions, through my speech, through my harsh judgment, thoughts, I forgive myself now. Feeling your body, breathing in and out through the heart center. We'll end our formal evening of practice by offering the merit of our time here, the merit of the goodness of our coming together to acknowledge, recognize, realize our true nature, our Buddha nature. May any merit for my practice be for the benefit of all beings in all worlds, everywhere. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be free from the suffering of this world of war, hatred, fear, division, racism, ignorance, confusion. May all beings be free from suffering. May all beings awaken. May we awaken together, realizing our true nature, our Buddha nature, the nature of wisdom, the nature of compassion. May all beings be free.